Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Janet. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to see you all here on this gorgeous Thursday night. Um, so Monday, we finished talking about step four. So we are just going to go straight to step five. And I think the title of a workshop, step five, is just kind of, you know, blah. So I like to think of this as like step five, the nearness of our creator, which is one of the step five promises. So my hope always when I talk is to convince anyone who's listening that the age of miracles is still with us, that there is a God, and that he is alive and well and launching search and rescue missions for us addicts. Um, so before we get to step five, I'm going to do a super quick run through of the first four steps for anyone who's new. Um, step one says we admit we're powerless over food, that our lives are unmanageable, that basically our memories that protect us from things like crossing a street when a car is coming or touching a hot stove doesn't work when it comes to food. There's a disconnect. So the thought, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of past binges can't make it to our conscious mind to start it. And we have a whole set of podcasts and um, resources on this. We have a page on our website called um, The Broken Bridge that really explains step one. So we admit we're powerless. Our lives don't work. They're like train wrecks, basically. And then we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, you may ask, how can I come to believe in something that I don't believe? That's kind of asking the impossible. But our program teaches us on page 55 of the big book that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It's obscured by pomp, calamity, and worship of other things. So when God created us and gave us a stomach, two kidneys, two lungs, he put the fundamental idea of himself inside of us. So just like I, I might believe I have no lungs, but that doesn't make it true. I might believe there is no God, but that doesn't make it true. So our book and this program teach us how to get away to kind of remove the spiritual cataracts that are blocking us. In step three, once we've learned to trust this God, um, because by this point we start seeing, oh yeah, when I start living a certain way, I'm not thinking about food quite so much. And yeah, God's restored all these other people to sanity. Maybe he can for me. And we make a decision to turn our life over to him. Basically, God, it says God is everything or he is nothing. So we give God everything. We don't treat him like a genie in the bottle to come out only when we need help and then to get back in and leave us alone the rest of our lives. Step four we clear away some of the things that have been blocking us from God. We analyze our resentments, our fears, our past relationships, our harms to others. And when we're done, we have this, um, this substantial document where we've listed all these things. And it tells us that we now need to admit to God, to ourselves and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs, step five. Um, so why do we do this, right? Why is this important? And in the big book on page 72, it gives us three reasons. 
Number one, I'm trying to get a new attitude, meaning I'm trying to change, to not be such a self-centered person. But look at the second reason. Number two, I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. So it says, let me read it exactly. It says, having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. Okay, that second one, a new relationship with my creator. See, this program isn't about just believing in God. It's about having a relationship with him. And this step is going to help me do that. And number three, to help me with the obstacles in my path, to see what are the character defects that are blocking me from my new relationship with my creator. And it says, okay, I've started to see what they are in step four, and now they're about to be cast out. Look at that wording for all the English teachers there could probably figure out whether it's um, passive, participle, something, but cast out. I don't do the casting out. God does that. That's how this program works. I look at my defects. I admit them, but then he removes them. I think we read these words so often that sometimes it's easy to miss out on the awesomeness of it all, right? Like these are my defects, a big wall that I've built between myself and God. And what does God do? Does he say, well, Janet, you built this wall, you caused this mess, so clean it up and I'll be waiting here for you patiently when you're done. He doesn't. He comes in with a broom and a mop to help me clean it up. Again, he keeps proving his love to me, to us over and over. And in the next paragraph, they tell us really the main reason why we can't skip this step. It says, if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking or for us binging. The text says that when people try to avoid this humbling experience, almost invariably they got drunk or for us binged. It says, having persevered with the rest of this program, they wondered why they fell. So how come they fell? Why did they fall just because they didn't do this? Well, by not disclosing everything, they were dishonest. And yes, dishonesty by omission is still dishonesty, right? At the top of page 73, it says, these people who didn't do a thorough fifth step wondered why they fell. They wondered, well, it's good to wonder, right? A person should always know why they fell, why they got into relapse. And they're telling us that not doing a thorough fifth step is a cause of relapse. Um, the AA 12 and 12 goes into great detail about this. Um, it talks about all the different consequences of not doing step five, irritability, anxiety, remorse, and depression. And they conclude by saying, it seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we're willing to try this. I mean, that's a really strong statement, but let's not miss the beautiful imagery here. The grace of God enters to expel my destructive obsessions. 
Like to me, that's such a cool image. It's like God just comes in and kicks the illness out. Just like um, a woman with a broom might say scat to a cat to, you know, get them out of the room. That's how strong God is. Um, and as a side note, it's always, always important for me with my tendency to a ton of pride to remember that it's the grace of God that gets rid of the obsession, not any hard work that I might do. It's as if there's a raging hurricane and my house is flooded and there's a helicopter coming to rescue stranded people. My job's just to climb to the roof so that the helicopter can reach me. I can't just say, pick me up by my front door, please. I mean, I'll drown, but let me never be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. All I did was climb up those steps to the roof so that I could be rescued. Anyway, back to the book, um, continuing on page 73 of the big book, it says that more than most people, we lead double lives. We're like actors. To the outer world, we present our stage character. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but know in our hearts, we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt. And guilt is only helpful if it encourages us to really, really admit our character defects. If I take 50 bucks from your wallet and I feel guilty, well, good, I should feel guilty. That means my conscience is, conscience is doing its job. But that guilt is only helpful if I go to you and confess and give you the $50 back. See, we're people who often carry around, carry around a vague sense of guilt which leads to a vague sense of unworthiness. And we just beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm just a piece of crap. And we call that humility. It isn't humility. Um, the book goes on to say that the alcoholic or for us, the compulsive eater is revolted by what he does on his sprees. It says coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. We are people who can't be vague. We can't have these boogeymen in the closet. We can't say, I think I sort of kind of did some not so nice things in my past, especially if we tack on, but if you were raised the way I was raised, or if you had the husband or the kids that I did, you'd sort of kind of do some not really nice things either. Mm -mm. I need to go to God and be honest and say, I faked a mugging. I lied to this person. I cheated to this person. I stole from Susie. I was nasty to Sally. I need to be specific. Why? Why? Because if we don't get these things out, the book tells us we end up pushing these memories far inside ourselves, which leads to constant fear and tension, which leads to more drinking or binging. So fear and tension mental and emotional drain. Then the chapter continues by saying, you know, therapy generally doesn't work for us because we're generally not honest with our therapists. And again, they keep hammering home honesty, saying we must be entirely honest with somebody, not partially, entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long and happily in this world. So I want to say a few things about honesty. Anyone who's heard me talk before has heard me say it. 
Basically, if we are not honest, we are not going to recover, period. It's as if we took a big black magic marker and wrote the words, keep out God across our hearts. God won't come in when we're dishonest. Um, ways we're often dishonest is with our sponsors, right? Often about food, we lie by omission when we don't tell them things that we should. Or even not about food, about other things. We know what we're supposed to be saying that we're not saying. And think about it. If I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I've made an idol, a false God out of my sponsor, thinking that my relationship with my sponsor is what's going to get me recovered. But remember, a sponsor's job is to help me get a relationship with God. I'm better off with no sponsor than dishonest with a sponsor. And if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, actually, I'm really stealing from her. I'm stealing her time because she can go out and work with someone who means business. So we are people who have to be honest. Whether or not earth people have to be honest or not, that's none of my business. But for people like us, it means no lies, no cheating on husbands, no cheating on taxes. We have to live a way of life that's rigorously honest. Okay, um, I'm gonna flip over to the AA 12 and 12 for a bit. On page 60, it says that until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we've so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So now they're talking about honesty, but they go even further. They say, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. Sure, it's a lot easier for me to just go to God and say, God, I faked a mugging and I'm sorry, than to tell another person, um, right? Because there's fear. What if my sponsor says, oh my God, you did that? What if my sponsor judges me? Um, and as an aside, when we're sponsoring, we need to make sure that our sponsees feel safe enough to confide anything. Um, I tell my sponsees that anything they tell me in a fifth step goes with me to the grave. Um, and I'm not a judge. I let my sponsees know some of the crazy things I've done and that helps them feel safe that I won't judge them. Um, also in this age, when most of us are sponsoring long distance, I find it helpful to do the fifth step and actually most step work on FaceTime or Skype or Zoom. It's my experience that we can form deeper bonds with each other when we can at least see each other, even if we're across the country. And again, that helps the sponsee feel safe and cared for. So a little bit more on from the AA 12 and 12 on page 60, it says that it is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they've received from God. Surely then a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. While the comment or advice of others may by no means be infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive 
while we're still so inexperienced in establishing contact with the power greater than ourselves. Get those words, establishing contact with the power greater than ourselves. That's mind boggling, right? Again, sometimes we're so busy looking for the lessons and the instructions that we miss the beauty of it all. It's mind boggling. The power that flung the stars in the sky wants to have contact with me, wants to have a relationship with me. And they're telling me that by doing this fifth step, I'm moving along that path closer and closer in a deeper relationship with my creator. Okay, 12 and 12's next piece of advice um, is to find the right person to do this with. Generally, it's someone who's done this before, usually our sponsors, but there are some caveats in the big book. Um, on page 74 of the big book, it says we can actually do a fifth step with a member of our family, but we cannot disclose anything to them which will hurt them and make them unhappy. That we have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. And I think that's a good rule, both for a fifth step and for life. I have no right to save my own skin at another person's expense. I have to put the welfare of others ahead of my own. And the big book gives us another rule, I think not just for step five, but for life. Um, we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap, right? People say, oh, I'm just so hard on myself. But it's actually necessary only in the sense of being ruthless about finding and admitting our character defects so that God can remove them. Not so that we have remorse or self-pity or beat ourselves up, but so that we can bring them to God so he can remove them. Um, I'm pretty ruthless with myself. There was a time where I caught myself thinking, I was, I didn't like something someone had done. And I said, I hope some, I hope bad things happen to her. Um, and I called my sponsor and I confessed it, didn't keep it to myself. I went to God and confessed the defect of mean spiritedness, asked him to forgive me and remove the defects. And then I said a prayer for that person. Um, and I think that's what it means to be hard on ourselves. The next paragraph gives the answer to a little big book trivia question. If you are ever asked, what is the only step we are allowed to postpone? And the answer is step five, only if there isn't a suitable person around. Um, and as soon as there is, we need to be ready and do our fifth step. And it tells us who's that suitable person, someone who can keep a confidence, who understands and approves what we're driving at. And once we have the right person, we go to it, we hold nothing back. Um, I had a sponsor who, when I was done said, okay, now tell me your deepest, darkest secret. I mean, we hold nothing back. It says on page 75, we pocket our pride. And if we do this right, we really do pocket our pride. And then um, this is my favorite part of the talk. The step five promises. These are some of the most beautiful promises in the book. But um, just like I don't like talking about a step in a, back, in a vacuum, I don't wanna talk about these fifth step promises in a vacuum because it's so cool to see the progression. Okay, so the first promises are with step two. 
there are no step one promises. Step one, I'm just admitting I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. It's as if I went to a doctor and admitted I have diabetes. Okay, I admitted it, but nothing changes just because I've admitted it. But remember, the big book tells me my problem is lack of power. So what I need to get better is power. And these steps are a continuum to getting more and more power. On page 46, it talks about us getting our first infusion of power with step two. It says that as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began, we're just beginning here, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps. So once I say maybe, just maybe there is a God and maybe this God can help me and I'll do whatever I can to move toward him, I start getting power and direction, just enough power and direction to get me to step three. And then at step three, top of page 63, there's more promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, meaning God. Being all powerful, he provides what we need if, so this is a conditional promise, if we keep close to him and perform his work well. So God will give me everything I need if I keep close to him and perform his work well. Um, I've had some rough family stuff this week and my sponsor reminded me, she said, you have to keep leaning into God. That's how you're going to get the, the power to deal with all of these hard situations. So it says, um, still step three promises, established on such a footing of staying close to God and performing his work well, we become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. Ooh, even thinking about that, right? Myself, my plans and designs for myself are just so like little. Um, the spiritual experience is starting here. The spiritual experience when God is rewiring my heart to make me more like him. So instead of being selfish and self-centered and being concerned with my little plans and designs, I become more tolerant and more loving like my creator is. Um, says we more and more, we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Now listen to this, as we felt new power flow in, so see we're getting more power at step three. Um, we got a little bit in step two, we get a little more in step three. And it says, we enjoy peace of mind. We discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence. That means we start realizing, yeah, there really is a God. Maybe I started with a, maybe there's a God, but now, yeah, I'm kind of convinced. And this God isn't just up in the cloud somewhere. He didn't just create the universe and then spend the rest of eternity watching Netflix. It says we begin to lose our fear. What do we lose our fear of? Today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. That pretty much covers everything, right? Today, tomorrow, and the hereafter, we're reborn. And then the fourth step promises on the bottom of page 70. It says, we've now begun to comprehend the terrible destructiveness of resentments and have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. 
on page 71, it says that their hope, the founders of this program, they hope that we're convinced that God can remove the self-will that blocks us from him. So now we go beyond belief. Now we have trust. Um, but here's something that to me sounds yucky, but is really great. The last line of chapter five, the step four promises, it says, if we've done our fourth step right, we've begun to, we've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about ourselves. That part is not really fun. But of course, only by doing that can we proceed to step five and my favorite promises of the book. Um, so after step five, when we finished our fifth step, it says, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. That was my experience. I felt as if I'd been nearsighted all my life and someone gave me a pair of glasses. Trees just looked greener. That's the only way I could explain it. Um, it says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. What a great visual that is. Imagine like, you know, when you go to the beach and you come back and you've got like sand all over you and you just brush it off and the sand just falls from you. That's what begins to happen here. And then this promise, we begin to feel the nearness of our creator. So not just an intellectual awareness, we know that he's nearness, near us. Whether I'm going through stress or surgery or the pain of rejection, God is right near me. And it says, we may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. That was me. I had spiritual beliefs. I was a practical agnostic. I always believed in God, but it was totally irrelevant to my life. It's like if I were a diabetic and believed in insulin, but never injected the insulin, it would do me no good. So we had beliefs before, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. God's rewiring our hearts. Then it says, the feeling that the drink problem or for us, the food problem has disappeared, disappeared will often come strongly, often. I take that to mean more than 50% of the time we're not obsessing about food. We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Oh, and by the way, if we think that's good, right? Being like free from obsession 51% of the time, at the end of step nine, it tells us we will seldom which means hardly ever be interested in liquor or food not on our food plan. And when tempted, we recoil automatically. So stick around for the deepening of the miracle. Um, the 12 and 12 has some more fifth step promises that I thought were really cool. On page 57, it says, we are people who are tortured by loneliness. And with this step, we begin to get rid of that loneliness. Yeah, the book tells us the fellowship helps us in a social sense, but even with the fellowship, we still suffered many of the old pains of anxious apartness. And that was me, right? I could be in a room with a hundred people and feel like I was the only person on the planet, almost like there was a glass cage around me. What's the solution? The 12 and 12 gives the answer really clearly. Step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. And the promises actually keep coming. Um, on page 58 of the AA 12 and 12, it says, 
we began to get the feeling we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought and done. Isn't that what we all want, right? This like this vague sense of feeling guilty. Even if we can't put our finger on it, if we can't say, oh, it's because I did that. There's this vague feeling of guilt and it starts going away. Remember when I'm telling my sponsor all the horrible things I've thought and done, and she looks at me the same way as she did before, I start to feel that maybe I can be forgiven by God. And it also tells us that it's often while working on step five that we first feel truly able to forgive others. So we start knowing that we can receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Another promise, page 58 of the 12 and 12, it tells us we start getting more humility. And I love that definition here. They define humility as a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could. Isn't that pretty, right? And page 59 has another promise, right? They just keep coming. Um, it says that only by discussing ourselves, holding back nothing, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty, and genuine humility. Pretty interesting, straight thinking. But of course, right, in chapter five of the big book, it says that once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by me doing this spiritual work, my thinking starts to straighten out. And step five in the AA 12 and 12 ends with this on page 62. This feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following, for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety. Look at that word toward. See, we get to a point where we're no longer, no longer running from food. We're running toward a full and meaningful sobriety, toward an ever deepening love relationship with God and a deeper and stronger ability to be of use to others. We're not running from anymore. We're running toward. So someone sitting here today who isn't sure that there even is a God, and so then therefore, how could this possibly work? I challenge you to start with a maybe prayer. Um, it might go something like this, God, and you know, you don't have to call him God or even believe that God is a him if you don't want to. God has many names, um, but to say something like this, God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me. But if you are there, and if you do care, I need help. The worst that could happen is you're talking to dead air and nothing happens. Okay, big deal. But what if there really is a God as so many of us have found? What if there is? And what if that prayer is a catalyst that allows God to start a renovation project in our hearts so that we have a spiritual experience? so that he begins to rewire our souls in such a way that our little plans and priorities don't matter. 
we're more interested in his plans and his priorities and the plans and priorities of our friends, of our family. And when that happens, the food obsession doesn't stand a chance because really and truly the age of miracles is still with us. And with that, I will pass.